we don't all have to be underprivileged to understand the concept of being underserved. I think it's just the diversity of our task force and our, you know, team that really teaches everyone. Like, you know, I was surrounded by many privileged people, but I learned how to not only share my story, but share the struggle of my community with many of my colleagues for them to understand how we can serve people. Because a lot of people who have privilege and power, sometimes they're afraid to know how to use it, not to offend those communities. So we need more people to be ambassadors. And I feel like my role was an ambassador between my community and the medical community to use those two and connect them and find ways to help each other. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, I have the distinct honor and pleasure of having with me on the show today, uh, a cardiologist uh, whose journey is incredibly inspiring and uh, has been uh, a personal source of inspiration for me. Um, and I've been I've been following uh, his journey ever since he was in fellowship. Um, I believe he's been featured by the American Medical Association, by the American College of Cardiology, among other you know various societies. I hope, and he's going to tell us more about this. Uh, but, you know, without much further ado, uh, I have on the show today, Dr. Heval Kelly. Uh, Dr. Kelly is a cardiologist at Northside Hospital Cardiovascular Institute uh, in Georgia. And um, he's a freshly minted cardiologist. He actually graduated from the Emory uh, Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship Program. And uh, Heval, I, I don't know if you know, but I actually have a lot of friends um, who've you know, either trained at Emory or are still training at Emory. So uh, there is that connection there. But welcome and thank you for doing this for us. Oh, thank you so very much. It's an honor to be here. Um, so, Heval, um, just uh, let's just dive in, um, you know, immediately. Um, tell us more about uh, how this all started for you. You know, when did the journey begin? Uh, tell us about your origins and what inspired you to become a physician. Tell us about your journey from... Um, you know, your native country to the U.S. and just tell us the details. Yeah, you know, it's honestly, it's an honor to to be here and, you know, to be able to share this. And I think by end of the episode, most of your listeners will understand why I'm so happy to be on your podcast. Uh, it means so much to me. I, uh, you know, I'm a Kurd from Syria. And, you know, the Kurdish ethnic groups was politically and oppressed, you know, because we don't have a country. So we live in Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. And my father was a lawyer and he got accused by the government and was, you know, tortured and arrested. And eventually it wasn't safe for us to stay. And when he was released, we just left Syria at age of uh, 11 year old. 
went to Turkey and then got smuggled to Germany and ended up being there in 1996 as uh, refugees, uh, you know, in a small town and, you know, in a German town in the mountain. And that was our first journey of uh, leaving Syria to Germany and living as refugees. I know my father was a lawyer, so he lost everything. And now we are this new country, have nothing, but we had safety. And then we lived there for six years on temporary asylum, which means every six months we had to apply for extension with the fear of being shipped back to Syria anytime. Uh, I was in you know high school there and ended up going to gymnasium, but I was told I couldn't go to college because I was a temporary asylum. Luckily, my dad through some of you know, the people who support us in Germany and the church, we applied to the U.S. with a hope to be an accepted. And, you know, after two years of, you know, having all the exams and being going back to the embassy, we heard the word, welcome to America. And that was a new hope for us, for a new beginning. Unfortunately, uh, while we were preparing to come to the U.S., 9-11 happened in 2001. And that kind of made us feel like, you know, it was a depressing moment for, for humanity, but also for us was very devastating because we like, I mean, America is not going to take a Syrian Kurdish Muslim refugee right after a recent attack. And, you know, we were depressed and we were thinking about going to another you know country like Holland or Belgium to apply for asylum. And then we got a call from the embassy saying you got three days to pack your clothes and go to America, your tickets and visas ready to go and then we made a decision to leave and ended up in georgia in a small town called clarkston about like you know 10 miles from emory so that was my and that was september 25th of 2001 uh, that was my arrival to the u.s so um Hival, how old were you then so yeah, so i left syria when i was 11 and you know when i came to america i was 18 year old wow because, um, you know, I, the, the reason I asked about your age was um, when, when 9-11 happened, I was, um, uh, I, I, was if I was about to complete my first year of medical school in India, in Simla, when this happened. Um, and um, I believe I was, at the time, 19 years old. Um, so, you know, to, it's... As you were describing this to me, um, I was having goosebumps because um, I was trying to position myself in your shoes. Um, you know, I was trying to exercise compassion and empathy, and it gave me goosebumps because I, to imagine a colleague um, who at at the same point in time, at, at one point, was going through incredible hardships you know, while I was studying in medical school is, is extremely telling for me. Uh, like I, my heart goes out to you and your family. So, um, well, you know, thank you for, thank you for sharing that. Uh, so uh, describe to us then what happened when you got to the U S. So when you got to Georgia, what have what, what ensued? You know, that's, that was an interesting transition point for our family. You know, in Germany, we had safety, but not much of a future. And like Syria, where we had everything, but we had no safety. And now in America, we have a possibility of a future. So here I am, you know, in a small, you know, city, one of the poorest, you know, cities in Atlanta, Clarkston, majority refugees and African-American. 
18 years old, you know, thinking about the American dream. And then I got hit hard. My dad was in a few weeks, had a heart attack. Uh, my mom was, you know, in her mid-40s, you know, Muslim woman with a hijab, couldn't find a job. Uh, my brother was 14, and here I was 18-year-old, senior in high school, uh, the only one eligible to work because we only come to America as a refugee. You got only three months of rent and support, and you expected to find a job and get your driver license and be independent. So within a few weeks, I think in America, my mom went to grab some falafel at this Arabic restaurant, and she asked if they could have a job for a woman. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, we now have an opening in the back for a dishwasher, but we're looking for a male. So I end up going there, apply. So that was my initial exposure to the American society is, you know, going every day after school at four o'clock, wash dishes, and then all weekend long work there trying to get paid to help my family. Um, and then eventually my mom was able to find a part-time job at a daycare center and and then I went to Georgia State University after I graduated from college. I actually got accepted to Emory undergrad, but I couldn't go because I had to live on campus. And then that means I cannot support my family. So I decided to go to Georgia State because it was a better school for me to work, support my parents. And then eventually after Georgia State, that was around 2002, I started Georgia State within like nine months in America. And then in 2008, uh, 2006, I graduated, took a year off to apply to medical school. You know, I had to take the MCAT twice. I had to apply twice. Yeah, and, you know, and with now no guidance, I mean, the only guidance has was like a heart surgeon who I met accidentally through my brother, Dr. Malatouf. Then I was accepted to Morehouse School of Medicine and started in 2008. Wow. Um, um, boy, God, God bless you, my man. God bless you. Um, so I, how was it like, what was going through your um, your mind when, you know, you would you would go to that restaurant, wash dishes and, you know, at the same time, start figuring out um, how to land yourself a position in a medical school? And give them cats. So just just describe the granularity of those days to us, because you know I'm sure there's a lot to learn for all of us from those days that you spent um, with with yourself and and th and, and with with your struggles. Um, just describe that to us, if if you don't mind, for us, Hival. Yeah, you know, I the one thing you know, a lot of people have the mindset. If you think about refugee, they think you come from a very devastated country or a poverty. But, you know, for ours was different. You know, my father was a lawyer and my mom's family were very wealthy. We had to leave Syria in our great life because of political crisis. So I never worked in my life. And in Germany, I never worked because you're not allowed to work as a temporary asylum. So here I am, my first job. I mean, I remember like I was washing dishes for two weeks without a glove and my hand will keep peeling off until one Mexican guy showed me, you know, with hand sign that I should wear gloves. So, you know, and, you know, it was depressing. Like, you know, you wash dishes is a very numbing, brain numbing job. You don't get paid anything, you know, and you think this is America, like really what people describe, you know, this is the American dream. But then, you know, I had no choice. You know, if, you know I was at a failure point of my life. I mean, I, I couldn't go lower than what I was. You know, there was all these uncertainties of paying for rent for my parents. You know, America was in a very terrible time post 9-11. Uh, 
it couldn't get worse for our family. So I decided to was like, hey, my only choice is to succeed this country. I got to learn English first. So I made it a habit. For every dish I wash, I was reading a page of any book. So if I wash 500 dishes that day, I better be reading a couple hundred pages that day just to improve my English. And that's how I passed high school and then college. Um, the reason I, I think medicine was important for me, I witnessed a friend in Germany had some leukemia and, you know, and died from it eventually. But when I came to America, when I, when I lived in Clarkston, the only reason, you know, the ambulance came to our neighborhood, either someone got shot or someone had a heart attack. Uh, and that kind of clicked my mind. I'm like, I want to do something about this. So that was kind of my first exposure to, you know, no choice but to succeed because I was at the failure point. And the other point, I want to do something for my community I was witnessing every day. Hey, well, that's uh, so inspiring, uh, and it's it's incredibly moving. Um, if you don't mind me asking, and, and I really want to dive deep into the mindset of that moment, uh, because I think I think that is uh, it's it's a break point. It could be a break for it, it could be a break point for so many of us, right? And and it's um, I, I think when someone goes through an experience like that um you know which you know unfortunately a lot of our fellow humans uh, ac- you know across the globe are you know are are living that experience on a day to day basis we see that a lot of uh, our fellow humans you know ascribe to unfortunately ascribe ascribe to drugs um as as an outlet to beat depression or you know as, you know ascribe to crime um to sort of support their families um and you know i mean obviously had a, a, a great parents you know great background uh, with their father being a lawyer um and um i'm sure your 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 parents uh, had uh, a tremendous role in your upbringing but you know when you are at that at that breakpoint in life um what is it that what is it that motivates you to do better? I, I mean, you know, of course, there's no choice and there's that circumstantial pressure. But from a mindset point of view, what, what's the what's the conversation that you have with yourself on a day to day basis during those times? Honestly, no choice but to succeed. You know, I, I had too many people depend on me. I was witnessing my mom waking up every morning at five o'clock making my lunch so I don't have to you know, spend money in a cafeteria at college, you know, so I don't seem like I'm too poor, you know, witnessing, you know, my dad's destruction and depression from, you know, going from being a prominent lawyer to nothing. Uh, you know, watching my brother's 14 years old, almost giving up on school. So I was like, if I give up, this whole family will collapse when pretty much, you know, we will have no future and we've been through so much. I got to pull through. And, you know, I used to take a, a bus and a train and a bus to get to the restaurant because of just how a lot of people struggle in these, you know, low-income community. Transportation is terrible. So so I had a lot of time to reflect, you know, going to work and coming back to work. And, you know, that was a time. It's kind of like a meditation. So, you know, if it was a rough day and I'm feeling depressed and I'm almost crying, by the time I get home, you know, during these one hour, one an hour and a half bus rides, I kind of rejuvenate myself and walk into the house 
trying to play, you know, a strength or a strong man to my parents. As many people understand, like, even if your parents are very highly educated, when they come as refugees to a new country, you become the parents for your parents. Because they don't speak English, they don't understand the culture, so they're very helpless. And most of the kids end up becoming the adults in the family. Yeah, so so thank you for that. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the message is that the, the time that you spend with yourself, um, I agree with you, is... Um, is an exercise in meditation. And, um, you know, when you sort of allow yourself, you know, I mean, in, it's, it's important to bring this up, right? Because we're living in an age of constant notifications, right? Constant emails, constant chatter. There's always something happening on social media. There's another social media outlet. But it's so important to have a quiet time, right? It's so important to have your own meditative space because that's where... Um, you synthesize everything that has happened to you during the day. Um, so break down, break, break down those days for us, you know, when you were studying for MCATs while still working, how, 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 how would those days look like for you? I think one of the best job I had, you know, in addition to being a cardiologist was being a dishwasher. And I refused in a restaurant to go up and become a server because as a dishwasher, after a while, you know, the job is very numbing. So, your brain pretty much does it on its own. So I use that time, the eight, 10 hour working to kind of repeat things in my mind and just, you know, use the, the fog on the, the steamer as kind of like my board start, like, you know, drawing organic chemistry formulas, you know, making, you know, module, remembering formulas. So I use that time to memorize a lot of things and, you know, refine those concepts, what I learned in school, what I, and then when I was on the bus and train going to school and coming back, I used that time to review a lot. Uh, I couldn't study at home because we lived in a one-bedroom apartment, so the space was very tight. So I ended up going to, you know, Dunkin' Donuts because it was open 24 hours. That's where I studied for the MCAT. They had free internet, and, you know, I was using my laptop to study. But I was using every free moment or any moment where my brain is not utilized for some other task to study. Um, and you have to keep in mind that the MCAT is very difficult for someone who doesn't, English is not their first language. When I took the MCAT the first time, I was only five years in this country. Uh, I like the step one. You know, the MCAT is very heavy on verbal reasoning in English. That is very hard. Even though you get great in science, it's very tough to do well if your English and verbal reasonings are not great either. So that was a big challenge for me. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I just, I'm, I'm short, I'm short for words, Hival, because, you know, like everything you've just described is, is nothing short of just spectacularly extraordinary. I mean, you know, going through what you've gone through, um, and, you know, to your, to our journey to how far you've come, it, it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, I think you should, if you haven't, thought of it, you should write a book on it. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to help you write, write, write that book with you or, you know, we can, we can do it together, but it is something that I, I really, really truly want you to do because, you know, st stories like these are, are for the mankind and for the humanity and for the, um, for the spirit and fervor of believing in yourself and, and having the confidence to pull through when everything else is, has has hit rock bottom uh, and and you um are a living example of that 
And uh, so, so you, God, God bless you. So, so after you got into Morehouse School of Medicine, how was medical school for you? Oh, very interesting. You know, uh, I thought getting into med school, you know, now is like you're living the American dream, but that was the first step towards your dream, you know, and, uh, it was interesting, you know, like, uh, Morehouse is a great school. What I loved about Morehouse in my time was a small class, 50 people. Uh, Morehouse is very mission driven, focused on social medicine and serving the community from day one, you get exposed. You know, I thought what I lived was terrible, but when I started going into the area, College Park and East Point where around, you know, Morehouse, I saw like the, the poorest of the poorest. I mean, I was like, is this really America? Like, you know, I only seen this on like, you know, documentary, how poor people are in other countries. So that kind of, that was the first step of I'm in the right place because I want to do something about my community and I'm in the right school to teach myself how to serve better. And what I love about Morehouse is so diverse that a lot of people who came from different backgrounds, we kind of become a small family. You know, we, most of us were minority. And if you weren't a minority, you had some adversity in your life that you could have shared with everyone. So I think that that, that was the best thing and that happened to me in my education. Uh, but again, you know, the, the changes, then, you know, the, the, the struggle of being poor did not change. I was still, you know, any moment my car could have break and I wouldn't be able to get to school. So I was always every day it was like a prayer of like, oh, God, please, I don't want my car to break so I could get to school to my lecture. Uh, you know, the struggle of, you know, I got Morehouse gave me a lot of scholarship, but I had to take a lot of loans to support my parents because I couldn't work in the restaurant anymore. So the, all these challenges still stuck around. And every moment there was something could have happened, right? Like if we couldn't pay for rent and the loan didn't come through, then I had to go work. So, uh, but I was, I feel like I'm very blessed, you know, that God, many people came in our life that helped me along the way to finish medical school at that time. Yeah. So um, is there any particular incident that you remember from med school that, that has, you know, sort of stuck with you and sort of been with you as you've progressed in your uh, path toward becoming a cardiologist? I mean, I think, you know, in our third year, we start going to Grady Hospital, which you're very familiar with. Uh, you know, if you, Grady is just like one of the best places to train. Yep. I know, I know about Grady and I know everything about Grady. Actually, my, uh, co-fellow, um, my former co-fellow who's now, uh, directing structural heart at the West Roxbury VA in Boston, Ronnie Ramadan. I, I think you probably know him. Or yes. Know yes. Him. I know Rami very well, yeah. Yeah, so Ronnie um, has actually told me some incredible stories about Grady. I think he was the chief resident for, for Grady. If I, if I, you know, apologies, Ronnie, if, if I got this wrong, but in any event, go ahead. So, yes, I do know about Grady. Yeah, and I think I never forget when, you know, we had aspiration. I never forget who kept coming to the ER and clinic for, you know, and you know complaining about being hungry all the time and and everyone was checking like thyroid level and everything you could imagine but the patient actually was truly hungry and i witnessed one of my attending for morehouse really took a good history and realized like this patient keep coming to the yard and it's like the patient actually truly just wanted some food and it's like everyone thought this guy could not eat or had weight loss or something like that and that kind of like you know, taught me, I was like, I need to learn how to listen to patient. 
Um, and I never forget the word of the attending says, hey, if you treat everyone the way you want your family to be treated, you're going to always do well. And I think that had been my philosophy since that, since that day. Because he, the way he talked to the patient, that was this homeless guy, and he talked to him like that was a family member. He's like, what can I do for you? And the guy was like, I just want a sandwich. I've been hungry for a while, and I can't get enough food and everything. And he was also some mental disorder too. But but I think that was an incident that shaped my thought and my career process. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's like um, treat others how you want yourself to be treated, you know, in, in any circumstance. And you know, I think that is such an overarching message even and philosophy for me also. Uh, so, no, thank you for um, thank you for affirming that. Thank you for reinforcing that for our listenership. Um, so tell us about residency. Where, where did you do residency? Yeah, you know, my my residency was, you know, I I finished med school in 2012, and I was very happy I matched with Emory for internal medicine. Uh, the reason why it's so important, you know, I came here in 2001. I started my residency in 2012. But the restaurant where I used to work at, where I washed dishes, is really, really one block away from Emory University Hospital. So that was a very, you know, I think I never forget that, like the day when I got my Emory ID after my, my shift, I actually went to the restaurant to get my uh, free drink with my Emory discount. It was a moment, there was a moment for me, I felt like I finally achieved one part of the American dream. Uh, you know, that was, and and residency for me was like a joyful experience because I was like, I'm getting paid for something I want to do. I don't have to worry about going to work to the restaurant. I could pay the rent for my parents now, even though as a resident, you don't make no money. But for me, that was a lot of money. And like, finally, I'm making like 55, 60,000. That's a lot of money for my family. Uh, I could take my, my mom out. We don't have to go to Apple, you know, Applebee's where it just, you know, golden Krell buffet. We could go to a nice restaurant now. So I felt very rich when I was a resident. I don't know if that, most people might not relate to that, but to me, it was like, wow, this is the best job I could do. I think most of the people in my residency think I was I was on drugs or something because I always came very happily to work at seven in the morning and was always excited to be there. You know, Heval, um, your story is, is so beautiful and it, it's so inspiring because it just puts things into perspective. Um, I mean, I'm just very emotional when I'm saying this because, uh, you know, it, it's 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 just so beautiful you know the, the the way you've the way you've eloquently described it and um um and, and the way you've you've put it uh, together for us and and thank you so much for doing that is that it, it really teaches the rest of us who uh, are from incredibly privileged backgrounds you know i'm i'm speaking about myself you know my 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 father is is a successful cardiologist back in new delhi and He's given me anything and everything any kid can ever ask for. And, um, you know, um, I think, and I think medicine, you know, the, a lot of, a lot of people come from, you know, backgrounds like myself and, um, you know, we, and it's, 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 it's great teaching for us and it's great learning for us when we have colleagues like yourself share your story because it puts things in perspective. And it teaches you gratitude. It, it, it teaches you humility. Um, it teaches you these in, incredible aspects of humanity that, you know, no, no one should ever lose. 
So thank you so much for for describing that to us so eloquently and so beautifully. No, thank you. I think, you know, again, like you mentioned, it's all perspective, right? And, you know, and, you know, we don't all have to be underprivileged to understand the concept of being underserved. I think it's just the diversity of a task force and our, you know, team that really teaches everyone. Like, you know, I was surrounded by many privileged people, but I learned how to not only share my story, but share the struggle of my community with many of my colleagues for them to understand how we can serve people. Because a lot of people who have privilege and power, sometimes they're afraid to know how to use it, not to offend those communities. So we need more people to be ambassadors. And I feel like my role was an ambassador between my community and the medical community to use those two and connect them and find ways to help each other. Yeah, no, an extremely noble cause, uh, Hival, and, and I congratulate you for uh, being the beacon for you know your community and being a voice and being a representation for them. Um, so. Um, I would imagine then cardiology came intuitively as a resident, or were you also looking at other subspecialty options? Because, you know, I know you mentioned that when you were in the community that you were living, you saw a lot of, um, a lot of heart attacks. So was that something that you wanted to, wanted to work uh, toward uh, as you were um, finishing up residency at Emory? Yeah, you know, I was between always cardiology and GI and and it's all, you know, sometimes you work with some great attending and they're trying to convince you to do certain specialty. And, you know, as an internal resident, eventually you find your calling. But for me, you know, eventually I decided to do cardiology because it's just watching my father, watching my community. I mean, just watching many refugees don't understand the concept of prevention. And, and you know, watching, you know, a lot of people from the South Asian community having heart attacks in the 40s and 50s. We had a huge, like, you know, immigrant community, you know, from India and Pakistan and Clarkson coming through, you know, working class and just watching people just, you know, getting diagnosed with simple diseases and eventually progressing to heart disease. So prevention was my calling. And I was very blessed to have someone like Dr. Sperling and Dr. Kayumi at Emory were, were able to mentor me in the field of prevention and research. And I had the pleasure to work with them. And they let me do my work in the community. Let me study, you know, environment and risk factors and, you know, refine my skill by traveling to different conferences. So Emory definitely, you know, more has given me the foundation to be a compassionate physician. And then more, you know, and Emory took that to the next level. I've given me the tools and the, the clinical knowledge to become, you know, a physician for the community. And interestingly, like my brother actually is finishing his general surgery of you know residency and he's going to be a trauma surgeon so you know I, I i'm not a good at skill god bless you know you guys interventional and structural for your work you know and i you know just i'm um, for me like being in the cathode or i just i couldn't see myself i wanted to be in the community more so you know and my brother's becoming a trauma surgeon so i think our experience in clocks and really impacted our choices in medicine yeah no that's um it you know, um, well, what, what can I say? You know, I get, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm falling short of words just to have just immense respect and, and gratitude for both you and your brother for just, um, you know, showing us and, and demonstrating us, um, you know, what the, the, the power of hard work and, and, and the, and the power of just, um, you know, humility and, and, and the, the verve of giving back, you know, is, is something that, 
uh, it resonates um, so much from from your story, and, and I'm sure your brother has a similarly incredible story to share. Um, so, Hival, um, tell me about um, about going back to the community as a, a cardiologist, as a as a fully trained cardiologist from arguably one of the finest training programs in in the world, if not in the country. Um, how, how did that, how did that, how does that feel? How did that feel at the time that, 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 that happened? Um, what were some of the reactions from your family, your parents, you know, your brother, tell us about that. I, I would love to hear from you. You know, interestingly, like, you know, I came from a Kurdish community, which is very small in Atlanta. And I was one of the first to go into medicine. So since I was a medical student, most of my community thought I was a doctor already. And every wedding I went to, people always grabbed me to the side, ask me a question. And I have to keep saying, you know, I'm not a doctor yet. Until I became a resident, I was able to help people and give some advice. So, you know, as refugees, you end up from early age, I have a lot of pressure from the community. So I wanted to go back. And when I was looking for a job, you know, I was very blessed to meet, you know, a great, you know, mentor and person that I looked up to through the ACC Georgia, Dr. Jeff Marshall which is, you know, he's my current, uh, you know, boss. And he really, like, wanted to, you know, just him and, you know, my chief, you know, Brad Tamala just told me, like, you know, there's a great opportunity in Northside. You could be close to your community and serve. And, you know, and they really were happy and about my work in the community already on the side while I was doing community service. So it was just a perfect match. And Northside is just a great institution that provides a lot of nonprofit work in the community. And I was very close. So when I started my first clinic, some of my first patients were from my community. And some of my Grady patients actually followed me to, to the clinic where I am. But it was amazing, you know, like to go from being a fellow and, you know, have your own white coat with your name on it, you know, have an office and a staff and MA, you know, just all these things were very brand new to me. But I had such a great team when I started. You know, I had so amazing people like in my work, like who were the like, you know, 10, 15 years ahead of me. And they're like, you know, I'm sure you understand when you start from going from fellowship to attending. It's so scary. It's like when I, it's like felt like I'm coming to America, like as this 18 year old. Now I'm like, I have the knowledge, but still I'm in, I have to be independent and practice. How did you feel about it when you transitioned from, from coming from a great program like you did? And now you have to be independent and do everything on your own. I'm sure it's more pressure even when you're an interventional and structural person. Yeah, no, it's it's nerve-wracking. Uh, I could not agree with you more. Um, you, you know, it's it's um, it's just uh, you know when I think I was talking to one of the um, one of the fellows uh, recently. Um, I think who interviewed me for the acc.org article, and you know, I was telling her like you know, it's it's just um, it's the it's it's internship residency and fellowship the the pressure all packed into one year when you become a new a new newly minted attending physician um because you know it's 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 you i mean you this is it right like you're it and um you have to be accountable for your decisions and you have to be available you obviously have to be the three a's like they like they say right you have to be available you have to be um affable and you have to be accountable. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an extremely, it's, I think it's one of the most, um, 
sensitive times for us as physicians, I believe. I mean, I think you know, having gone through two, intern- two internships, residency, and three fellowships, and uh, now I'll be finishing. I'll be finishing my fourth year out, you know, from fellowship, and advancing into my fifth year as an attending physician. I could not agree with you more that you know that time is the most sensitive time in our careers, um, and you know we need a lot of support from you know our seniors, you know people who have who have gone through the similar path and process. Um, so no, I. 100% agree with you that it's very nerve-wracking. Yeah, it is. I mean, I I mean, you know, again, I was very blessed the team I joined. I never forget that when I was like starting, you know, a week into my job, uh my boss, you know, Jeff Marshall would call me every week and every time he called me, I thought I was in trouble, but actually he was just calling me to say, "Hey, if I need anything and I, if I have any question and, you know, my other colleague will call me be like, "Hey, do you have any question?" You know, because as a fellow and intern, you in that mentality when you get a call from your leadership, either you miss something or maybe you forgot something. You have that mentality. You don't want to hear from your higher up unless they need something from you. But in attending, I was very surprised of the support that everyone called you actually to check on you to make sure you're okay. Or to, you know, and and I was I felt like I was very blessed with Northside and the group we have, and and the whole institution is very supportive. Even for like every if I had a question about my email or something like that, even if they don't know, someone will grab, take the time to, and grab like a piece of paper and show me how to do it. So I think I was very blessed to find that platform. I think that's important for even fellow when you're looking for a job, you got to find a job with great people and great platform. That's, that's the formula for success. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, like they say, you know, just find your tribe, you know, find your community and, you know, find the people who are going to support you because you need a lot of support um, you know, it's also, you know, the, I mean, at least for me, you know, I was, you know, building my career, I was building my family and it's just, um, it's, it's, it's a rough time for, I think a lot of us. Um, so I think all support is, is hugely, hugely welcome. Um, I could not agree with you more. So Heval, what is, uh, what is on the horizon for you? You know, what are, what are some of the, what are some of the projects that you're working on in the community and, um, how do you foresee your career, um, you know, from here on end? I mean, from what has already been like just an incredible, incredible success story. And, you know, like if you haven't, I mean, I encourage you, like if you haven't thought about it, I, you, you should think about writing a book on this. No, no. Thank you for your encouragement. Yeah, definitely. It's something uh, my wife and my family and my friend asked me, I think one of my focus is preventive cardiology. And I think that's the future of medicine. And, and my goal is to become, you know, an expert in the field in at least in Georgia and and serve my community and build something along Northside, like a you know, prevention center. And we have amazing people already at our work that are working on that stuff. So that's one of my cardiology career goal and continue doing some of my research and publishing. On a personal level, I'm involved in the ACC diversity task force. And this year I was you know, able to be nominated and get accepted. So that's a dream to come true because that's one thing I'm like, I, when I went back to my community as a resident, I remember, remember none, pe- none of the people who graduated from high school with me went into medicine. And I looked at my community. I was like, you know, I lived in this community. There was no doctors and nurses and medical students. So how these kids will grow up one day and say, I want to be a doctor. So 
that's how I created this program to go back to the community and help them. And that program grew from one high school to several high school. We serve like hundreds of students every year. So that's one of my passion is to, you know, I made it because someone helped me and connected me. Could have been a matter of luck, could have been a matter of hard work, but I wanted to make sure luck is an opportunity now. So that's my, my passion, I think, in my life to become a great preventive cardiologist, but at the same time to be able to increase diversity in medicine and recruit more people from underprivileged and underserved backgrounds. Yeah, what a beautiful goal, right? And and it's um it, it's just um it's also inspiring, you know, inspiring um to have people like you uh, be our colleagues who can um you know, continue to educate us about perspective and about humility and about the value of hard work and about perseverance and and you know, sort of be the beacon of all those qualities that I just just described, um, and, and sort of lead the way. So um, again, you know, God bless you, my man. Congratulations, and uh, you know, I wish nothing but um, you know all the success and to you and your family and and all your missions, uh, including the one that you have for ACC.org. Uh, I mean, for for the American College of Cardiology, the the diversity um, committee. Um, any closing remarks, Heval? I mean, this has been an incredible episode. So thank you again for making the time on a late Sunday evening. Um, any any concluding remarks for the podcast um, for for our listenership? No, thank you so much. You know, as all, every time I I speak to someone of my journey, I feel honored because I never imagined on this kid washing dishes one day that my journey be an inspiration to someone. But you know, going back to what I mentioned, like you know, going back to the community and just your presence could create like this beacon of hope and light. I mean, I, I watch you sharing your work in India and I think you ha- you were one time on a mission and we took a picture of a bunch of kids drawing, you know, all these kids, I think from a town in India and you were like, you know, holding their picture What I think you were doing something. And I think that's very important as human to realize that just your presence there as a cardiologist, as a human, could really inspire a lot of people. And these kids were so happy. Am I wrong about that? Like, I think I saw. No, no, you're, you're actually spot on about that. It's, um, it's, uh, so I, I do nonprofit work also. And, um, you know, like, you know, like you said, uh, I mean, you know, a lot like, a lot like you, I, I want to give back. And, you know, if I, if I can, if I, if I'm allowed the privilege to, you know, be, be inspiration to, to kids who, who, uh, you know, may not have had the same privileges as, as I have had as a, as a, as a child. So, um, you know, this was an initiative through our nonprofit, I, uh, which was held on Diwali. You know, I, I know you have a lot of Indian friends. So Diwali is like, is our Christmas, right? It's, uh, it's the festival of lights. So, you know, through my nonprofit, we organized, um, a drawing, a painting competition, and uh, to just, um, be able to, uh, pick up kids who have who have the the talent but do not have the opportunity and uh, you know picked up three kids actually one of the kids um you know ended up supporting um you know painting classes for him so that he could, he wants to grow up to be a painter but has never had the opportunity uh, for any form of training you know either vocational training or uh, you know, just the basic skills to sort of hone his talent of, of, a, of, he's, he's a gifted natural painter. And, you know, I think if, if he can get some guidance, he can, you know, who, who knows he, he could be the ne- next Picasso, right? And, and, 
and, and you know, like for uh, for for the nonprofit to be able to provide that opportunity to him is something which is extremely, extremely special to me and relevant for me. Um, so no, th- th- thank you for vividly remembering that. I'm actually impressed that you remembered that. So no, no, thank you for bringing that up. That made my day. It really did. No, I think it's just a reflection of you know you you were there. You could have been you know I'm sure you are like providing free you know participating in volunteering as a medical doctor, but you were in a setting there just as a human being with resources, and just being there with the kids. And I think even them knowing you are a cardiologist or not, it just gives them a sense of belonging, I guess, to something called humanity. Yeah, no, I, I, that's very eloquently put. I, I don't think I would have put it that eloquently as you have, but thank you for doing that for us. Uh, yeah, any 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 closing remarks, Sahibal? No, thank you so much for doing this. And I hope, you know, your listeners and and you and your, you know, team, you know, anyway, I could help out, could enjoy enjoy this conversation. And again, it's a privilege to be here. And let me know I could be helpful in anything in the future yeah. to you, to your yeah. audience, the listeners. Absolutely. Well, we'll stay in touch. And, you know, I'm, I'm honored uh, to know you. And, um, you know, I, I just uh, feel so happy that you are one of us and you are our esteemed and an honored colleague. And I, I look forward to seeing more posts from you. You know, we follow each other on social media and uh, I'll stay in touch, my man. And, um, you know, kudos to you and good luck to you. And let me know if I can be of any help to any of your missions and if I can if I can provide any any help with, um, you know, data analysis or what have you or, 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 or writing stuff up. Just let me know. Just hit me up. I'll be more than happy to be of any help to you. Okay. No, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.